Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Before we get started, this is your reminder that if you've been living under a rock, now is the time to rise and get Ride Sally Ride from Douglas Wilson. It's really important that you go out and get Ride Sally Ride before it is no longer satire. Get it at ridesallybook.com. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 165, 165. Good to have you with us. So what are we going to talk about this time? Well, what I want to talk about this time is um, something I noticed years ago, back in the 80s, when I started reading Reconstructionists. And here were the two things I noticed that I thought were in somewhat, uh, in a position of some tension. The Reconstructionists that I was reading back then, North and Rush Dooney and these guys, they were all post-millennial. They all had an eschatology that uh, looked at the future with optimism and historical optimism. Every, every Christian, pre-mill, amill, post-mill, every Christian is optimistic if you're allowed to include heaven, if you're allowed to include uh, what's past the last judgment. So once we get out of this uh, world and past the last judgment and into heaven, then of course every Christian is optimistic. So when I say optimistic es- eschatology, I'm talking about historical optimism. So postmillennialists are those who believe that the Great Commission will be successfully fulfilled, that the nations will be brought to Christ, that they will be baptized, and that they will be taught obedience to everything that Jesus taught. So this means that we believe, we postmills believe that that the world is going to be Christianized. The world is going to be saved. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. All right, so there's that note of historical optimism. At the same time, when I was reading the Reconstructionists back in the 80s, I noticed also that they were far more incisive in their critiques of what was currently going on than anybody else. Their attacks on the current culture were trenchant, cogent attacks. That doesn't make sense. They, they, so if anybody, was, if anybody could be counted on um, to be able to point out how our monetary policy was dumb and stupid or how our treatment of um, the American Indians was, uh, as Rush Dooney did, was, was awful and appalling, uh, if anybody could be counted on to dismantle uh, the current pretensions of our current respectable political types, it was the Reconstructionists. They they were uh, sometimes savage, sometimes hilarious, sometimes just edifying, but they they did fantastic demolition work. And yet, so on the one hand, they were saying you get all the recons together and point north, and they say, well, that's awful. And then you point east, and they say, that's bad, too. And then you point south, and they say, and that's terrible. And then you point west, and they say, that's, that, that is godforsaken. And you say, don't you guys like anything? <laughs> what are you doing? I'm not arguing that all of, the, all of their critiques had merit or that they were all equally sound. 
But there were there were some really incisive things said there, particularly uh, with uh, Rush Dooney's early books. There are uh, gems throughout, gems of uh, social criticism throughout his books, and the gems are like they just see right to the heart of the issue. And yet, this was coming from people, the people who were telling me that everything's falling apart, were the people who were telling me, and it's all going to come together. Uh, The Lord is on his throne. He is going to establish his rule. Uh, Jesus is king, and so on. Now, I I believe that these two uh, things in tension can be reconciled, and I believe that they can be reconciled in this way. In the long run, stupidity never works. In the long run, stupidity is not a strategy. If you keep doing dumb things, sooner or later, you're going to run out. Sooner or later, it's all going to come up dry. And when that happens and reality settles in, there's an opportunity for repentance. There's an opportunity for a preacher of the gospel who will come to you and preach the gospel and say, I come in the name of the Lord Jesus, who commanded me to baptize you, to make disciples of of you all, baptizing you and teaching you everything that Jesus commanded. Plotcast, episode 165, we continue on. So in our study of homartiology, we've now come to another instance of a name instead of an abstract noun. This word is Belial, Belial, B-E-L-I-A-L. Throughout the Old Testament, a son of Belial is basically a son of worthlessness, a son of worthlessness. It is generally used of Israelites who were covenant breakers. In other words, they were within the commonwealth of Israel, but for all intents and purposes, they lived without reference to God and his law. So a a great example of this would be the sons of Eli. Now the sons of Eli, it says in 1 Samuel 2, now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. So the basic idea that you have here is someone who was in covenant with God, meaning that they had an obligation to know the Lord, and at the same time they did not know the Lord, and their lives reflected that they did not. So, let me read that again, 1 Samuel two twelve. Now, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. So, they're sons of worthlessness. There's one use of this word in the New Testament, and from the context, it appears that Paul is using it as another name for Satan, just as the Lord uses it Satan interchangeably with Beelzebub, Paul uses, uh, apparently uses it, uh, Belial is interchangeable with Satan. Here it is, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what, hath, what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, continuing on with Plodcast, episode 165, uh, the book I'm reviewing is a book I got on Kindle and read it that way, and the book is American Negro Slavery, a survey by a guy named Phillips. Now, this gent named Phillips was a historian, an Ivy League historian. I think he was with Yale. And I came across this book because during one of our current generation's periodic racial frenzies, 
I read a newspaper article that uh, was talking about our, our racist past and whatnot. And there was a, um, there was a movie that was made early on uh, called Birth of a Nation. And there were, uh, from the clips I've seen, there were some genuinely uh, racialist, racist or racialist elements in it. But the movie was shown, I think, uh, to Woodrow Wilson in the White House, and, and it was received generally with acclaim. But it was the sort of thing that was acclaimed then, and everybody now is appalled by it. Well, this article was talking about Phillips, this, this historian, as the guy who traveled around making American Southern slavery palatable, uh, making it seem not as bad as it was. And, uh, and in this article, he was one of the bad guys. If you think of the um, very benevolent take on slavery that was apparent in the Disney feature film uh, Song of the South, that's a, a live-action movie interspersed with cartoons. The cartoons are Br'er Rabbit, um, uh, Br'er Rabbit cartoons, and Uncle Remus is the slave who's telling all the stories and so forth. Um, and if you ever have a chance to, um, I think the guy who wrote Br'er Rabbit was Joel Chandler Harris. They're just magnificent folktales. If you get get that in a book, if you can, uh, that's another book review. Uh, Br'er Rabbit is another book review, but the sanitized view of Southern slavery uh, that you saw in in Song of the South was blamed on in this um, in this newspaper article was blamed on this Phillips guy who did the yeoman's work of providing a scholarly a, a, a set of scholarly excuses for those who wanted to remember slavery in that way. Having with these people having dumped on him as a uh, purveyor of falsehoods, uh, I thought, huh, I wonder. So they they he, they represented him as sort of this archetypical bad guy, uh, you know, generating falsehoods that caused all kinds of bad things to happen uh, down the road. So I got a copy of the book and read it. And the thing that was amazing to me about this is uh, Phillips was judicious and calm and scholarly and careful. Uh, he wasn't carrying water for anybody. Where appalling things happened, he reported uh, appalling things happening. When things were not bad, he uh, he reported on, on that. It was it was really striking. So whatever some people may have done with the work that he did, it was very clear to me that this was a historian doing the uh, careful work of examining the records and determining what had actually happened with slaves and how they were treated and who did what to whom and when. He is a source that ought to be, people ought to continue to turn to him. He's, he's not what he was represented as at all. So, American Negro Slavery, a survey, Phillips, this would be something if you're working in this uh, period, if you're studying history, if, you, if you're at all interested in this period, he has a lot of footnotes, a lot of references, and he's not a partisan. He's not, he doesn't have his hair on fire in any way. He, uh, when evils occur, he calls them evil. When benevolence occurs in the midst of a broken system, he calls it for what it is. Uh, yeah, he, this is just a, just a judicious book. American Le Negro Slavery, a survey. Phillips. Mm -hmm. 